I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, I'm joined by a co-host, Bassam of the West Bank Robbery Podcast, to speak with Noah Colwyn of the Blowback Podcast, alongside Brendan James. Noah has explored such topics as the Cuban Revolution, the Iraq War, and the Korean War, on previous seasons of Blowback, and now they're tackling the mammoth subject of Afghanistan from the Cold War era to the U.S. invasion after 9-11 and the eventual withdrawal 20 years later. In this conversation, we'll be covering a number of issues related to season four of Blowback, including the scandalous history of the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, and some discussion about 9-11 that I hope you will find extremely interesting. With all that being said, let's get right to it with Noah Colwyn of the Blowback Podcast. Welcome to Parallax News. First, uh, my co-host for this episode, Bassam Habash of the West Bank Robbery Podcast, and our very, very special guest, Noah Colwyn, who, alongside Brendan James, hosts the Blowback Podcast, which is now in Season 4. They've covered Vietnam, Iraq, the Korean War, and now they're covering Afghanistan, which is apropos because a lot of us first learned about the concept of blowback from the Afghanistan War and the events of 9-11. How are you doing, Noah? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. 
So I guess to start out, uh, for listeners that are unfamiliar, maybe you could talk a little bit about the sort of trajectory blowback has been on uh, going back to season one and why now you're covering Afghanistan. Sure. So I would say that the, uh, you know, the 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 first season that we made definitely was uh, it, it was on Stitcher Premium, a service that no longer exists as of, I guess, like a month ago. And um, we also had a, uh, you know, a second season on there as well. And the first season was about the Iraq War and the second season was about the Cuban Revolution. And while the first season, you know, we we, we kind of emphasized the end of it, that our use of the name uh, blowback is to sort of not suggest that this is a, you know, that these are unintended consequences of things that we're examining, but much more so that actually we are looking at, uh, you know, things that are part of a pretty well lubricated and important, you know, and, and, and you know, uh, uh, well-functioning system. So I think for us, the evolution of the show and and sort of what we've reached this season you know last season we did the korean war and now this season we have afghanistan yeah i, think I was for, gonna say i misspoke earlier so you covered the cuban revolution not vietnam yes correct correct sorry okay. I, I i i that that washed over me anyway, yeah I mean, my mistake um, but go on no no i'll get either way so we uh you know we've gotten so, so when we got to afghanistan i think for us the idea of blowback um and and you know, the sort of journey that the, the show has been on it kind of crystallized in this season as a sort of, you know, it's a mixture of American wars, you know, an outright American war in the 2000s that I'm sure many listeners of the show uh, have direct and explicit memories of, considering it only ended about two years ago. And then we also have this, you know, Cold War proxy war. And there is a history linking them that is sort of the, you know, the, the, the backbone of our story that I think is commonly actually i don't think i i it is commonly left out of all of the stories and uh you know even charlie wilson's war uh the movie you know which is probably the closest pop culture portrayal to that linkage that exists uh doesn't really actually connect those dots in a sophisticated way literally you know relegating it to as much of a, a footnote that exonerates the americans as possible one thing I wanted to get into before we uh, do the deep dive into the nitty gritty details of the season is uh, some of the themes you cover. Uh, one theme that comes up uh, throughout the show, and I think specifically at the beginning and the end of the series uh, or the season, is this idea of the Ouroboros or the snake eating its own tail. Why, why is that a theme that's recurring throughout this season? So the Ouroboros, is a, it's, it was a a piece of imagery that I got to credit Brendan uh, for coming up with. And I think the idea of an Ouroboros, like, you know, this, this thing that sort of constantly devours itself. Um, if the goal is, you know, and in, in the case of America, this was certainly the case, you know, if the goal for Afghanistan is that it's just, you know, it's, it's a country that is just purely being instrumentalized in service of our war, for example, against the Soviet union. Um, then it doesn't really matter what we do to the people of that country, to what existing society there may be there, uh, to the public and civic institutions. Uh, you know, I, I think that people actually have a pretty, um, you know, it's it's or rather the the, the American government has a, a pretty ruthless uh, uh, 
I mean, perspective, strategic outlook and, you know, what it, you know, as it relates to the story, I guess that as the, you know, as one cycle of violence ends, it simply restarts into the next phase. And, you know, however it intersects with American policy, I mean, you know, we're, you know, arguably we're kind of back to the position now that we were. Uh, in the 1980s, where we have the, you know, we had these ad- allies, the Mujahideen, who are radical Islamists, who had an incredibly puritanical view, who uh, we elevated from being, you know, uh, countryside rebels into being the government. And after this long period of, you know, fraught tension with them in the late 90s, and then, of course, when we were at war with the Taliban in the 2000s, you know, now we have talks with the Taliban. You know, they they may yet be a potential ally in a in a in you know our ongoing rivalry with Iran. So there is also just after forty years of American supremacy, there is a measure of continuity, and that continuity, you know, it's 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 the snake eating its own goddamn tail. Basam, do you want to? Uh, I want to kick it over to you if you had any questions to start out. Um, I was just thinking about it quote that you guys had from the show um you said the soviets did not invent ho chi Minh, but the americans invented the mujahideen like it was a very inorganic <laughs> movement just shipping you know surface-to-air missiles to anybody who would use them against any sort of anti-american government um i was gonna say you also yeah. include that uh that great clip of shipignu brzezinski one of the sort of masters of u.s foreign policy uh saying you know, God is on your side to these Mujahideen fighters. Yes. Interfaith alliance. I mean, it's it's a great, uh, you know, it's, I think the way for us to conceive of, you know, is of course what we mean by that when we say that, you know, Americans, you know, that we invented the Mujahideen, not, you know, in a way that, you know, as opposed to the, the very much like, you know, authentic and organic nationalist of Ho Chi, uh, Ho Chi Minh. It's not to say that like, you know, we invented Islam and ratted jihad in America, you know, took the is took the jihad gene and gave it to a bunch of Central Asian uh, guys, but rather that we recognized and had picked up on, you know, an existing colonial legacy, particularly uh, most interestingly uh, preceded by the Germans uh, of trying to use holy war as an instrument to destabilize your opponent. And this is particularly effective when your opponents are communists, because, the, you know, that's a secular it's that is the secular Satan. And um, it was the position of the Mujahideen. You know, we I interviewed journalists for the show. I think Antoine Levin's uh, interview uh, in the among the bonus episodes has this exchange. But, you know, they describe about how, you know, they're talking to the Mujahideen around the period of time that the Soviets are leaving. And they're like, yeah, you know, they're gone. And now we're coming for you, motherfuckers. Like there was a, you know, they, they, they we were willing to arm them, even though, you know, like there is like a kind of, I mean, you know, however you want to put it, like, I think the neocon language for it would be like a kind of civilizational contempt, but it's like, again, a very specific radical ideology that we helped inculcate by, as Boston pointed out, you know, just sending arms, you know, to them. And it was like, oh, you're plausible, you know, and, and it's also, I I will say one other thing that's useful here, and we didn't go too much into it in the show, but you know, Pakistan in particular is a, is a really fat as a kind of fascinating uh, role here where, you know, Steve Cole's book, for example, Ghost War spends a bunch of time talking about this dimension of it, where like you, you did have Pakistan make a substantial investment 
using use like they directed a substantial investment that had come from the Gulf states to build madrasas. And you can view this as kind of the process of neo neoliberal uh in you know state building, where you know, as opposed to just like developing public education institutions, Pakistan has a very, very infamously low public expenditure in education. And part of the way that that's compensated for is that you have this, you know, Islamic Gulf state funded, you know, Gulf monarchy funded uh, education system in the hinterlands, in the provinces, these, you know, these not urban areas that are what ultimately, you know, it's it becomes a like they're creating people who like, you know, are not necessarily just because they go to these madrasas are going to become, you know, uh, like, you know, fighters for the bin Laden group or something uh, like hardly that just that you are making the kinds of people who if they start to live in a failed state or if they are, you know, conscripted by force or, you know, circumstances push them into that kind of life. Uh, you know, they're minting them, essentially. And so I think that there is always like, you know, a, a degree to which it's like, you know, you could you, like, I don't know how much of that, you know, was that like a CIA op? You know, it's like, I don't know. To me, it also feels like that's just, it's a great example of, you know, how like history kind of converges and like these different trends can go to make something, you know, the most extreme, you know, an even more extreme uh, possible version than, you know, what it otherwise could have been in this case being, you know, the American funded Mujahideen. Yeah, the so, CIA was printing their textbooks for them, you know, like trying to create a generational conflict. Absolutely. And, you know, it's like really like kind of like um, heinous stuff of like, you know, like Ahmed is going to the market. Like, you know, should he put like one bomb in his bicycle basket or two? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm only I am only like slightly, you know, uh, exaggerating. Uh, since you mentioned the CIA, I, I really liked how the first few episodes deal a lot with the intelligence community. Uh, so you talk a lot about the Safari Club. And also, I was I nearly shit a brick because in the second episode, you talk about the BCCI. And no one talks about that history of the, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. I, the only people I hear talk about it now are kind of like really sort of um, – fringy sort of voices on the sort of conspiracy left. But the BCCI was a real scandal. There's that great book, um, Jonathan Quitney's The Crimes of Patriots. Could you talk a little bit about the Safari Club and then the BCCI for people that are unfamiliar with those stories? Because I was so happy you covered both. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and and, and also great, great name drop there with Jonathan Quitney, one of the great muckrakers of the latter like last 20 years of the 20th century he wrote for barons and uh listeners should be sure to look up his stuff k-w-i-t-n-y one of the best um bcci is is a great example you know I, I earlier referenced like neoliberal education in pakistan and i think this is another you know like neoliberal tendril of the Af of the afghan op which is that in the late 1970s and 1980s, you know, the you know, the, there's the Arab oil embargo. There are a series of, you know, shocks. And part of the way that these shocks and the system is absorbing them is and it's changing is that, well, you know, a more global world, you know, a global net globally networked world is emerging. You have new telecommunications uh, that are able to get into this, you you know, like expand on this, but we we don't have to go as the emerging Internet uh, is able to sort of, you know, technologically uh, you know, uh, instant, you know, uh, uh, represent that. And then you also have, um, I mean, the, uh, like literally in Afghanistan, China and the communist China and the United States collaborating on arming the Mujahideen because they have a shared strategic rival in the Soviet Union. 
And this also applies to finance and that, you know, how does it apply to finance? Well, capital controls get eased, meaning that it becomes easier for people to move money from one country so that they can invest it somewhere else where, you know, maybe they'll get a lower tax burden, but maybe because it's a less developed country, they'll be able to get a higher return on their investment um, because there are fewer rules, uh, you know, or because it's, you know, like they're it's, you know, whatever the reason is, but capital has it's 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 the capacity for global development rises. And this includes places like Pakistan. And so BCCI is a bank that is sort of born out of this moment when, you know, capital is 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 not is, is less and less being confined to one nation and is moving offshore. And the bank serves millions of depositors who are largely, you know, immigrants or, um, you know, working class or, you know, kind of peasant, like, you know, just above peasant class uh, workers and laborers. Uh, and even, you know, and then eventually, you know, of course, middle class uh, holders as well. But, you know, really, like it had a salt of the earth customer base uh, spread, you know, especially in the UK and Pakistan. And the company, the bank was incorporated in, uh, I believe, Luxembourg and the Bahamas or the Cayman Islands. One of the two. I forget which, but I, I'm, I'm sure it's one of the two. And uh, BCCI is is created. It's the, you know, it's hatched by. Uh, this guy named Aga Hassan Abidi. And it is able to, you know, kind of take advantage of this, you know, deposit base, uh, you know, that it has of all these immigrant banks. It has, and he, you know, and Abidi is this entrepreneurial Pakistani fellow with a lot of, you know, shady links to the American intelligence age, uh, community. Um, he's got, well, he yeah, that's why there's lot. always been that line about the BCCI being like a CIA cutout, but go on. Yeah. 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 So it's, I mean, it's not just a CIA cutout, it's a Saudi intelligence cutout. So it's also, you know, I, I, I tend to take a little bit more agnostic of a perspective on like who started BCCI, because I think it's more, it's more interesting and a little bit easier to wrap your head around it. When you think of it as like this big, you know, a shadow bank, nobody's looking at it. It's domiciled in two different places. And it's, you know, the um, it's this guy who runs it. Abidi is like a weird cult like figure. If you look up on YouTube, you Google his name, uh, A-G-H-A uh, Hassan, H-A-S-A-N, Abidi, A-B-E-D-I. Uh, he has like you'll get these like very new agey spiritual corporate speeches that he would give. He's a strange guy. And on the back end of this. BCCI was also the bank for uh, I believe it was the bank. Was it Crooks and Criminals International? Uh, you know, it was it was where uh, a lot of notorious crooks did their, you know, like drug runners, uh, arms dealers, uh, the terror, the, the left, the supposedly left wing terrorist Abu Nidal. Although there's a lot of, you know, the fact that he worked, that he banked with BCCI uh, lends credence to theories that he was actually not such a, you know, not necessarily uh, a man of his own interest. Um, and I do believe he, that there he was is. Crazy. He would kill any anybody for any Arab state. Yeah, exa he exactly. Was he was there. not. He was there to just eliminate the tops of every Arab organization that. Would it be bought by you know twenty thousand dollars from Saddam or the CIA? Exactly. I, I, I was going to say. Well, go on. I'm sorry. No, so just the last part about BCI is that you know it was you know it was a you had the accounts that the CIA held some of the money a substantial chunks of the money they were using for the Mujahideen as well as the Contras were being plugged in through accounts in BCCI. I, that's and, what I was going to say. I think that the Iran Contra arms merchant Adnan Khashoggi was a BCCI customer. He was. He was a major. He was a major BCCI customer. Um, 
And there's a number of books, you know, that have, I think at least one or two books that open uh, about BCCI, like Outlaw Bank or um, like, I forget the other one, but the uh, False Prophets. But the like, you know, they open with the scene of, of, of I believe it's Khashoggi and Abidi trying to like go around, and, like raise money for his bank or even no, no, no. He's, meet, he's meeting with Saudi royal family or the or an Emirati to raise money. But like, that's where he gets the capital to, to build this thing uh, is from Gulf Royals. And you know, these are, are play people who at the same time, you know, again, like consider the historical moment uh, in the late 1970s, early 80s. This is the moment when a huge part of the CIA's capacity and the American intelligence community's capacity is going toward building up the allied authoritarian governments in this region, building up there in, you know, the, the, to compensate for the tremendous loss of Iran, which was previously the biggest American client in the region. You know, they were, they, you know, I mean, like the 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 Saudi intelligence service, as well as the Pakistan the GND, as well as the Pakistani ISI, were made as kind of mini CIA's. You know, as 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 the people who run them proudly admit and said declare. Uh, so BCCI, yeah, it's kind of. I mean, it's you know, it's it's. I feel like in you know, conspiracy heads uh, can kind of get away with a lot by calling something a nexus, but like it, it really BCCI does fit the bill. It's really shocking how, like, I, I just finished Conflicting Missions. It's about, like, the Cubans in Africa. Highly recommend it, by the way. One of the, one of the best books on the subject I've read. And I've been playing Metal Gear Solid Five, And I'm surprised how few things there were interacting in the Cold War. Like, like the Cubans have one boat. They just ship around the entire world. If the CIA had just followed that boat, they could have found every gun the Cubans had ever shipped for, like, 10 years. There's one bank. Things seem a lot more dispersed now. I think they've gotten a little bit smarter. I don't I don't know if there is a BCCI right now. Well, I mean, that's where I think like crypto is like the funny. I mean, I I, I don't know enough about like the origins of crypto to like have any like uh, truly firm ideas about it. But the fact that we don't know the individual and that like the name Satoshi Makamoto is also like apparently it means central intelligence or can be. Uh, I, I believe that that's not cap. And uh, if somebody listening uh, corrects me, then you're a liar and a charlatan. But um, I, I, you know, it's like I think crypto is kind of like an amazing uh, like the government doesn't want to have to build banks. Right. Like it would much rather just like do this stuff in a way where nobody could trace it, et cetera. And there are times when they do need to have, you know, they, it, like they have to have all options. Right. There are times when they do need to have it, banks. And they do have to do that. So it's I think, you know, these um I think that there's to your point, like, is there BCCI or is there not? Um, I do. Well, I tend to believe that the days of like I see like corporate outright corporate infiltration are over because the relationships are just so much more openly uh, interwoven now. And it's just so much less of an issue. Um, it does feel like it's, uh, you know, there's it's just like, yeah, they, they, we've just made the whole global economy out of BCCI. I was going to. so. I was I was going to ask that I also mentioned the Safari Club. Maybe you could go over that just a little bit, and then how how did the Safari Club and the BCCI uh, tie into the history of Afghanistan and the history you're covering in Blowback? Right. So BCCI was used to uh, transmit money to all sorts of people in Afghanistan, and and it's a key conduit there. And the Safari Club was an organization that was set up. By I mean, it was first hosted at property owned by uh, Adnan Khashoggi, one of the customers of BCCI, a major arms dealer, uh, and who's caught up in Iran-Contra, among other 
many, many, many other scandals. Uh, and the basis for the Safari Club, as described in an interview at Georgetown by former Saudi intelligence chief uh, uh, Prince Turkey, years years later, was basically like, you know, his short version of it was, look, after Watergate, your intelligence agencies, they couldn't do anything. Their hands were tied. And so because they couldn't do anything, they had to turn to people like us to, you know, subcontract the the work more or less that they used to do. And the Safari Club was one of the entities that, you know, and it was rather, you know, it, you could argue it was the maybe the the it, like, you know, the, of the informal uh, networks that grew up around this time. It was, you know, the the most representative, the most influential in directing the shared struggle among, you know, a, a pretty diverse group of interests, you know, before the Shah fell, including Iran, Pakistan, China, um, uh, I mean, Fran- uh, France, there, there was a, you know, a, a, a large group of countries that all their intelligence agencies, uh, you know, informally developed a shared strategy uh, instead of tactics for how they would fight against the Soviet Union in the 1980s, you know, and, and, and you know, quote unquote, like world communism, um, because you can also see the safari, you know, one of the other major, two major battlegrounds at this time are apartheid South Africa itself. And then also, you know, for instance, Angola, where you have uh, Cuban and Soviet aligned forces, uh, in you know battling against the apartheid and western supported forces uh so there is you know a, a kind of um like a i guess the way i would put it, the safari club is is a you know it's it's it sounds like a conspiracy thing but like there was a real place they met in africa you know a real safari thing and they all agreed that you know we got to fight back against the commies and here's how we're going to do it and it involved you know uh you know like i mean global guerrilla warfare and gun running and you know afghanistan is arguably just the most you know was just the most extreme uh play you know battleground that that mechanism produced i still can't believe they called it the safari club it would not yeah, be called it does that seem today. like That's it's a, a very on the nose right yeah yeah the uh like specifically with angola like the cia running out of their discretionary budget and then having to turn to subcontracting to other nations it's like a really major struggle of them to you know support like the south africans and the other like contra groups around the time i think uh like the post watergate cia i think didn't get up to a lot of dirty business oh totally i mean and this was also part of like they I, I think one one interesting way to think of afghanistan too is like you know it wasn't just like another cia like it was a um it was a it was a way for I think like and we we go into the show of talking about how it was definitely a way for America to you know win back mojo that it had lost in Vietnam and and to fight a good fight and all that and all that. Well, crap. yeah, yeah, we see this with Rambo three, you yes. know, which you start the show pointing out that the famed uh, this is dedicated to the brave Mujahideen fighters is actually not in the movie um, <laughs> or any VHS copies, but that movie is kind of a representation of how. I think America in the Cold War era viewed Afghanistan. I mean, in that movie, like Rambo, John Rambo is basically uh, trying to be forgiven for, you know, the failures of Vietnam by helping the Afghans in their fight. Yeah, and and, and there uh, was... The the Mujahideen thing not being real was so fucked up. It ruined me. I was telling my friends, like, somebody died. Like, it was terrible. (laughs) Yeah, it does feel... 
it's it does feel like kind of reality shifting. <laughs> yeah. I will say one thing that also occurs to me about the uh like perceptions of Afghanistan thing is that you know, Rambo three, you know, I think you're right to say that it actually does reflect the way most Americans thought about Afghanistan, because even if they didn't feel the same kind of, you know, corny zealotry that is the stuff of a Rambo movie, there was, you know, a general sense that, oh, yeah, this is a good war for us to be fighting. When in reality, you know, when you consider what became kind of the, you know, the, the Western cause celebs of the of Afghanistan, you know, the country with the hardest living conditions of the world in the 1990s, you know, talking about women's rights under the rules of the Taliban, it was like, well, the Taliban are the creation. Well, first off, the Taliban are the creation of the ISI, the Pakistani ISI, which is ostensibly our ally. So what's that about? Uh, and then second, you know, we blew up the government and made sure there was no chance at reconciliation or meaningful, you know, peace or diplomacy uh, for the duration of that government's existence. Uh, when there was a government that actually gave a fuck about women's rights or gave, you know, or 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 you know education uh secular education on a mass level um meaningful rural development and so forth i mean it is like it's it's a definitely like a yeah i i mean it's 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 a it's it's pretty alarming just how uh crazy americans uh or rather like like how how successful i guess is the issue uh is, is the thing that amazes me how successfully uh it was sold to the americans that like this was just like an objectively clean good war and you know it's good to see the soviets like you know take you know like take it on the chin here so one thing that i always come across for people that are new to topics like this is i, I think for most americans the invasion of Afghanistan and then the end of the invasion, you know, when we pull out the withdrawal, it's almost like we treat them as happening in a vacuum and we forget everything leading up to those two events. Uh, could you talk about how blowback sort of acts as a corrective to that? And and like, for instance, uh, you know, the ways in which the Cold War connects to the lead up to 9-11 and how sort of it's there's a chain of events that follow, you know, and these things are connected. Yeah. I what think about? the, the biggest part of it, you know, like the, you know, and this is sort of where like blowback is, is the kind of, you know, this is, this is where if people are familiar with the term, this is the kind of the moment uh, that you, that it's describing or, or the, and, and the historical dynamic it's capturing. So first off, the Soviets withdraw and the war in, in 89 uh, or 88. Um, and, you know, they, they withdraw at the end of the 80s. And the Afghan the Afghan communist government holds out for another few years. But in 1992, it falls. And, you know, like, like basically right after the Soviet Union falls and, you know, without Soviet aid, you know, without without rather not even Soviet aid, just like without the Soviet Union, it didn't really have a chance. And. When that war winds down, the Mujahideen, many of them, in particular, the quote unquote Arab Afghans, who are in reality just Muslims from Sunni Muslims from all over the world, ranging from Indonesia to Bosnia. Uh, and they are told, you know, they, they are they are now no longer participating in a struggle in a holy struggle against the Soviet Union. Now they're in Afghanistan, right over the border from Pakistan. Uh, and it's 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 basically becoming a civil war. Um, and there is a, a 
you know, a ta- and this is the period before the Taliban comes to rise, but it is now just, you know, different warlords who were previously the Mujahideen commanders fighting against the Soviets, many of them who are, you know, the ones who are indigenous to Afghanistan, such as Ahmed Shah Massoud, who, uh, you know, is from the north and is a Tajik uh, ethnic leader, uh, and then Golbadin Hekmatyar, who, who is the biggest recipient of CIA aid uh, among so all the, of them. So these are like the same guys that Brzezinski, he goes and says to them, that hill over there, that land is yours, you know, and your your cause is right. These same people that he was, you know, pumping up and saying, we're on your side, you're going to defeat yeah, yeah. the now, Soviets. Now- now, like they're just like below, you know, Kabul has until now actually been like relatively unscathed after all these years of conflict, despite that, which is, you know, means, by the way, that like, you know, I would argue that, you know, considering like Afghanistan is a country where so much development was contingent upon the condition of the capital, um, you know, for so many reasons. And uh, and it just gets leveled. You know, it's it, the town is destroyed. The city is is is, is really wrecked. So basically, and, we're, we're, we see a takeover by warlords. Yes. And and so for those who are not sticking around for the warlord confrontation, a lot of these guys start going elsewhere. Pakistan doesn't want them around. So some of them end up, for example, in the Balkans. And they are, you know, like people who are later identified as being part of Al Qaeda, um, you know, the bin Laden group. Um, but that's not what it's, you know, that's not the language that exists for that at the time. But these guys are... Um, they go to places like like Kosovo and, you know, they are they they start training th- like so, for example, they're training the coast. They, they, they're the guys who start up the Kosovo Liberation Army, which is really ethnic Albanian Muslims who are, you know, now who are at that fight, you know, being led into combat. And it's well known by guys who, are, you know, like like jihadists from Afghanistan who are blooded in Afghanistan, trained in Afghanistan and probably worked at the CIA in Afghanistan and are now participating in that part of the, you know, f- you know, fallen Soviet empire. And then elsewhere, you know, uh, th- you know, somewhat, um, you know, kind of unrelated to the Soviet fall, you have the Abu Sayyaf group, which is, you know, takes its inspiration from, you know, uh, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, like, these are the uh, guys, like guys cut from the inspirational cloth as Osama bin Laden. They go to the Philippines in, in the Southern Philippines and, take advantage of the, you know, more separatist Muslim Mora movement. And basically they're the first jihadists to like kind of pioneer the art of like public beheading um, and spectacle killing like that. And they make tons of fucking money from hostage schemes and stuff like that. You know, so basically like the Afghanistan war, the point of like giving those two examples in different places is that like it just creates, um, you know, like Islam, like radical, radical Islamist criminal gangs that are, you know, able to that, that that do all sorts of, you know, that do that do stuff ranging from Africa to uh, you know, uh Southeast Asia and 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 in Eastern Europe and so forth. And as all this is going on, there <laughs> there are even people who are part of the Afghan struggle who go to who go to the US and commit crimes there, who uh, are actually people who are CIA informants and FBI informants. People, uh, you know, we, we name one a guy named who's sort of well known in uh, I hate to call it 9-11 lore, but I su- suppose that's kind of what it is. Um, uh, Ali Muhammad. Ali Muhammad, who, who uh, was the subject of a really great book, not to name drop here, but uh, Peter Lance's Triple Cross. Yes. And it's a great, you know, it's it's a it's a there is this 
as all this is unfolding, there is, you know, still yet other stuff going on. For example, the Saudi U.S. military strategic tie up gets even more serious because when the U.S. takes out Saddam uh, or at least like cripples Saddam with Desert Storm and, and Desert Shield and Desert Storm, uh, the effect of kicking his butt out of Kuwait is that like we are accomplishing a strategic objective for two major U.S. allies, Israel and Saudi Arabia, who, while not friendly at that time, both really hated Iraq was their primary regional rival. And so after after the Gulf War, that is no longer like that's 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 not real anymore because the sanctions regime like Iraq is pretty fundamentally crippled. And. As as you know, as as part of that military operation, uh, the U.S. puts troops on bases in Saudi Arabia and there is a kind of, you know, my, you know, like like mild great awakening that takes place in Saudi Arabia during this time, just like a religious revival movement, whatever you want to call it. And Osama bin Laden cassette tapes get passed around and these radical, you know, there, there is a, a, a jihadist ferment that's, you know, resentful of what they view as the capitulations being made by the Saudi leadership to these Americans and and to the West and so forth. And it is in light of that, you know, that the, the, you know, Al Qaeda starts bombing uh, or at least uh, or what we later call Al Qaeda, the bin Laden group organizes um you know including ali muhammad this guy i just mentioned who had made you know who had former fbi informant cia asset had worked with and had, had, had trained Pete it was a who's you know a guy who um trained uh the assassin of mayor kahana that's how his name first comes up in the 90s in the investigation of the first world trade center bombing ali muhammad Sorry, just lost my thought here for a moment, but um, just because he's a such a goddamn riveting character. But uh, yeah, he he's also, like a double, triple agent. I know he's like, he's, he's like he's, a thing he's, straight out of a James Bond. Movie. Yes, exactly. You know, he trained the assassin, and we still don't know today, like where where he is exactly, because he hasn't been sentenced, um, as far as we know. But the uh, the gist of all of this, um, you know, like these bombing plots, uh, I bring up, like say the U.S. embassy in Nairobi in '98. Um, you know, this is in response to an sort of dialogue with like it's it's what from from the bin laden group's perspective uh with the american you know and the western uh desecration of you know holy lands etc cetera, etc cetera. and the bomb in uh uh the bomb in 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 uh in in nairobi and in tanzania the bombs rather that both go off in 98 for example they take they happen they're timed the anniversary of U.S. troops being in Saudi Arabia. And that's what Osama kind of talks about. And now, you know, once you start to move from that period, though, to like 98 to 01, Osama gets kicked out of Sudan, where he's got where he was setting up base. And he goes back to Afghanistan, where the Taliban invite him back because he'd been there in the 1980s as a freedom fighter. And essentially, the people who go on to commit the 9-11 plot are pretty much at like every turn kind of just like enabled to do so um you know we cite some pretty mainstream sources like james bamford um and and and, and you know kind of trying to re you know really reconstruct uh, steve cole and reconstructing a lot of the timeline of you know leading up to the attacks but do, basically do you use uh, the looming tower at all lawrence right to a point um yeah. i i like james bamford's book more because it's much more about the nsa and i think that nsa is like they're like because basically they're you know what we illustrate is that the nsa was tracking you know like they're specific like you know 
won't bore your listeners with their, with trying to remember all their names. Uh, but essentially, the NSA is monitoring 9-11 hijackers pretty closely. In fact, somebody who is on a CIA watch list and, and, and who uh, is being theoretically monitored or searched for by both agencies, you know, these are people who are being searched at the time. One guy leaves America because he misses his wife, goes back to Yemen, participates in the USS coal bombing in 2000, and then is able to go back into the U.S. Um, you know, it's just like all like it's it's this kind of like, you know, I I, I air away. I, I do not shot. I do not err on the side of believing that this is incompetence. Um, and I'm not alone in that because the most famous and influential person who believes that it's not coincidence um, or mere incompetence is Richard Clark, the former right. Richard Clark believes there's essentially a recruitment op that went on. Yes, there is. He is the former. He's played in the Looming Tower Hulu series by Michael Stuhlbart in a in Stuhlbart, an amazing role. Um, but he's, you know, he's like, a, you know, one of these like, you know, like deep state, you know, uh, national security types of counterterrorism. I mean, he was the counterterrorism are under Clinton and Bush. Exactly. I mean, th- this is what gets me about 9-11 is the whole thing with the Alex station. So you have Doug Miller and Mark Rossini at Alex station. And I don't know how much you cover this, if at all, in, in the season. But, you know, this is where the Clark thing comes from. They're told by the bin Laden unit, no, don't share that information with the FBI. So the two FBI point men in the bin Laden unit are told – uh, no, don't share that. And um, the information had to do with the Malaysia Terror Summit and Al Hazmi and Ahmed are coming to the U.S. So, you know, stuff like that is just, I think, remains unanswered. And Clark believes it was a recruitment op uh, that the CIA was doing, uh, that the Bin Laden unit was trying to recruit these two terrorists and flip them. Right. And I think that that's, you know, he says that because there is like... Because that's the one policy, that's the one thing that he's allowed to say out loud that you can consider. The other thing that's, you know, much more disturbing to consider is like, you know, not like did the CIA or did, like did the did they do quote unquote do 9-11, but like was there foreknowledge that there might be a devastating attack? And at a time when, you know, literally on September 10, 2001, Rumsfeld's address to Congress is about how we need to cut defense spending. Like, you know, how, again, you made like, you know, tremendous headwinds. They thought, well, maybe we'll let them kick up some stuff. And, you know, it's the degree to which it was like, well, did they know that they were going to execute like the attack that we now know is 9-11, blow up the, you know, fly jets into the towers, attack the Pentagon, you know, nearly, you know, like, like, like they could have done even more damage. You know, we still don't know how things would have gone down had United 93 not been flown into the ground. Um, You know, I, I to me, it's a very uh, like that's the other side of the proposition and is the thing that like we can't like. I don't know that to, as as somebody who is relatively and I should say this if it's not clear to those listening already that like compared to many others, I am un, unschooled in the nuances uh, of 9-11. But like, no, you know, reading what I have read, uh, what does just seem to me pretty clear, it, it, you know, this these Richard Clark comments that, they, you know, they could have been trying to infiltrate and try to, you know, under, you know, get inside of this terror group. And it's like, well, to what end? Like to, to prosecute them? Was that their goal? Um, like it doesn't really, you know, the we in the second season of blowback on our a thing about the Cuban revolution, you know, we, we have a we do a segment about JFK and the assassination, um, a pretty it's a pretty long part of one episode. But we interviewed Jeff Morley where he talks about like, why would the C, you know, like, what's the point of an operation where the CIA in this case would be infiltrating the Fair Play for Cuba committee? And he says that, you know, you do that to imitate, to be able to imitate and, you know, to to to, um, you know, uh 
act as if you are that entity. Um, and I'm not saying that that was necessarily, you know, so like hand in the puppet kind of thing here, but like, I just don't think that like, it should be the end of a discussion. Like, oh yeah, they were trying to like get a spy or an informant because like, I don't think that they just had that ambiguously as a goal. And, you know, I, 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 I suspect Richard Clark doesn't believe the doesn't believe it ended there either. I just don't think a guy like that is allowed to say the next part out loud, you know? Yeah. I think we know a lot more now about um, like how, terror plots are foiled a lot of them are just you know yeah. uh the fbi finding the lowest iq in the state and then you know telling him getting to agree on facebook messenger right um, sort of entrapment plots and you know I don't, like with how many of those there are like fucking i don't know like james comey made his career yeah exactly that. you know like I, I don't think it's beyond the pale to say hey maybe they just don't stop one <laughs> you know we need more funding we can't be too good at our job we'll start cutting up the agents you know yeah, and and it's also I think um, the historian Michael Brennis, who wrote one of the best history books about the Cold War ever, um, his his name is Brennis B R E N E S, and um, the name of the book is it's, it's awful that I'm forgetting the name of the book, but Michael's a friend and and he he wrote about like the the Cold War economy primarily, but I know his next work and he's talked about this is about you know, trying to resituate 9-11 and the war on terror, not as a kind of pivot point or a hinge, but rather as, you know, continuity. And 9-11 is much more interesting as a historical episode. I'm not talking about the dynamics of the event itself or any, like, you know, like, you know, plot elements, but just like when you think of, well, what, like, you know, what was, what was the world like before 9-11 and what was it like after uh, what did people want before 9-11 and did the crisis event and policy, uh, you know, environment created by 9-11 give those people what they wanted? And in the case of, you know, it's like, all right, let's, let's, you know, let's start running on the list. It's like, well, the CIA was able to take the predator drone and use it to become, you know, like the, like install itself as the linchpin agency in the country's targeted assassinations policy for like the following 20 years. Um, the NSA got enhanced surveillance, you know, tactics uh, and and rights, uh, like or sorry, they 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 got they got enhanced uh, enhanced privileges of surveillance, let's say, and the ability to use uh, you know new technologies far more widely than had previously been deployed. You'd think they'd be punished for you know uh, intelligence failures, but in a way, nine eleven was like they got rewarded after exactly, <laughs> exactly because it was a you know it was a the the you know i mean and this is the thing right is because we also have you know and, and this is sort of it's the, the, the you know the, the this becomes also very apparent as in this moment when they're you know in the, right after 9 11 when they're starting to figure out what the fuck are how do we fight the taliban they don't really have like an air force i mean we kind of blew it up what 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 little shit they had and you know they just have no targets like you know that was you know we, we like we no targets or targets or targets and it's like well if they if the taliban has no targets and the al-qaeda guys are all just living with the taliban like you know what is to say that these guys don't really pose you know like what is the threat these people pose beyond like you know like box cutters and the you know ignorance of intelligence agencies like is it really something you know and, and that's to me the kind of like well that contradiction seems kind of meaningful no Real, real quick, so with Ali Muhammad, in case listeners are confused, why do you think the Muhammad story is so important? Yeah, I mean, basically, he is a guy who, uh, you know, he gets caught in Canada, for example, uh, in the early 90s, and he tells the Mounties, like, 
like call the FBI, tell them to let me go, tell them like who I am, and they'll you have to let me go. And he gets let go. And and then you know he goes on to you know like teach the Al Qaeda guys how to do stuff with box cutters on planes. Like this isn't you know it's it's just like a clear cut case of okay this guy um, you know and his allegiances uh, his he had he's originally from Egypt and. He uh, fought with the Green American Green Berets, I believe, and so he's just like an you know one of these like you know he's a, he's a, he is a, an operator in a time for what it's worth I think before that was really well known um, as like a kind like you know like well before like the kind of like SEAL team image like he you know it wasn't as uh, ingrained in archetype I would say and he was you know kind of like that guy for uh, all of these like you know psycho islamist gangs that we helped fund during the course of the 80s and then just kind of let loose around the 1990s and he had the protection from not just the fbi but also he had a, I, I don't know remember the particulars of it but i do know that he was like a an agent a cia asset as well i also wanted to mention if i could and then i'll let basam uh, get in here um you know, I only I know he only gets mentioned a few times in some of the episodes, but I'm really interested on the John O'Neill angle to this story. For people that don't know, John O'Neill was known as the arch nemesis of bin Laden. Uh, he was known as sort of a, a maverick guy within the FBI. And also he quit the FBI after a big feud with the CIA and eventually ends up with cruel security as the head of cruel security at the World Trade Center and dies on 9-11. Yes. And. I mean, it is like a it's it's a really fairly crazy story. But he, you know, when he explains, you know, like, why is it that we couldn't go after Al Qaeda and that stuff? And, you know, those guys, the answer that he gave, uh, you know, and told, you know, reporters and others before he died was, you know, it's about oil companies, because what was really valuable to about the Taliban and the reason not to piss off the Taliban at that time uh, was because America was doing this really delicate dance about trying to get uh, pipeline rights, or at least an American company was supported by the CIA and the State Department. And O'Neill was, you know, he was not like that wasn't his job, you know, the, the like he was in a different part of the, you know, like the national security bureaucracy. And, you know, he butts heads repeatedly uh, with the with the CIA and with, I guess, Alex Station. Um, specifically, which is the, the 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 CIA's get Bin Laden unit, which has FBI people detached to it. But, yeah, yeah. Famously, one of the heads of the Bin Laden unit, uh, Mike Scheuer, uh, yes. who was I forget which period he was there, but he left before 9-11. He famously said in testimony to, I believe, the Senate during the torture investigations, he famously said the best thing that happened on 9-11 is when the building collapsed on John O'Neill's head. Like, so there were people in the CIA that really hated him and the feeling was mutual. Yeah, right. I mean, it is it's a it is a pretty hard statement. It is. I, I And I think also the other thing with like the with the I mean, I think it's. Uh, it's a it's a it's a crazy fucking coincidence or a crazy thing, whatever you want to call it, that he died uh, on 9-11. Yeah. And in, in, as the head of security at the Twin Towers. 
there's so many things like that. Just like little things that you would see on the bottom of like a Yu-Gi-Oh card, like little bits of lore. Throughout <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just footnotes in a book. Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, it, it is, I, I, you know, it is also like, you know, if you were the head of, if you were like, you know, looking for a guy to be the head of security for the World Trade Center, would the like tri-state area residing counter former counterterrorism chief of the FBI not be like the candidate for the job? Like it is to me a great example of like uh, I, you know, it's like a, a kind of detail or fact so good that I think of it as, you know, like almost like a novelistic, a novelistic flourish to history as opposed to like anything I could interpret meaningfully or for like or for like IRL value or whatever. In regards to the FBI and the CIA and the NSA, uh, do you think it goes beyond uh, the common explanation I hear is, oh, O'Neill and his people in the FBI uh, were fighting with the CIA and vice versa. And that's why 9-11 happened. Do you think there's more to it than that? I think there is more to it only in the sense that like, you know, what the, what, what like I, I think that there was fighting between the FBI and the CIA uh, but like there'd always been fighting between the FBI and the CIA. There's a book called like wedge. I remember uh, by Mark, forget his last name, Arling, Rowling, Riesling, whatever. Um, but he, uh, Roebling. Um, but um, the thing that, like, you know, which is to say that like, the, like these agencies always, they hate each other and like, and they hate each other because, you know, like they're like, they're fighting for turf or perspective. And if one agency has an operation ongoing that they don't want to tell another one about, you know, that that's like a like that. that's the kind of like, I don't think like put it this way. I don't think that there is just a culture of infighting that, you know, exists ambiently. I think that that's like, you know, a thing that you have to say, like, well, what is that culture? What are the specific events and acts that constitute it? And in this, you know, and, and if we're to sort of say, well, like, what were, was the cause of such enmity here? It's like, well. Is it really like, you know, like, what does it sound like when we say the CIA was deputized for being like the nerve center of all things anti bin Laden? It had this thing called Alex Station. Uh, that's where they put all of the bin Laden people, which goes on, by the way, to also be responsible for the torture program. But that's another story. Right. Uh, Alfreda Bukowski. Yeah. They were known as the CIA's Manson family because they were all acolytes of Michael Scheuer, who's now like a crazy trump guy that thinks you know trump supporters should overthrow the deep state i mean all of this history is like really wild i mean it's it's well that's part of what i think is i mean you know and it's a lot of these deep state guys i think the trump it's good that you bring up the trump thing there because it's like a lot of the common thread with a lot of you know what these guys do share is i think that like reality was sort of scrambled for them in this time and right after and that's why, like, you know, a former CIA, like, muckety-muck is now, like, a Trump, like, like, they're probably, like, he probably has entertained seriously whether or not they eat children in comma ping pong. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. And real quick, I, I just want to know, in, in case people didn't get my reference, Afreda Bukowski, I believe she's the wife of Mike Scheuer now, uh, but she was in Alex Station, and in the torture papers, uh, she's known as the unidentified, she's called in the news media the unidentified queen of torture so all these figures sort of connect to various scandals their names pop up over and over again yeah and and they're also the most well-protected people in the history you know in the recent history of the agency um gina haspel who was made cia director under trump is in a lot of ways you know i think that her appointment should be viewed in the historical context now not just as like you know uh for whatever policy things she did do, but also kind of symbolically because she had witnessed torture uh, directly during this period in the post 9 period, 
uh, it was a way of kind of saying, listen, there will be no accountability. There's just going to be a shitty Amazon movie. You know, maybe somebody in 20 years will write a book, but there won't be account accountability. Like, the, you know, it was that was the they took advantage of the fact that they had Trump and were able to get, you know, hall passes for all the bad stuff they did. And because they're fucking, you know, and because they're power drunk and and have like nowhere to go, you know, now they're all just like um, uh, Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas. Like they're just totally they're just nuts. I I, I had three more questions. I know we're running up against the no, hour. Please but... go for it. OK, so the, the first one and I've seen people bring this up on the blowback Reddit. Um, what are some of the primary if people wanted to and I know you have notes on this for the each season but what are some of the primary sources you use because i'm impressed by your sourcing you use uh steve cole's um i, I believe it's called ghost wars and then there's also uh terry mcdermott who's a really good journalist on this who are some of the other sources and books that you sort of use for this yeah. season so um afghanistan's invisible history by paul fitzgerald and elizabeth gould they're great uh, i've is... had them on the show yeah they're lovely people, wonderful. We have bonus episode interviews with them. Um, I urge people to also read um, the like for the deeper history, like further back in the past, the tragedy of Afghanistan by Raja Anwar is a pretty seminal text. Um, Afghansi is a book by this former British diplomat, uh, Roderick Braithwaite, that is remarkably clear-eyed, especially about the like 80s period. And, um, you know, I think the Steve Cole, I think Steve Cole's Ghost Wars is a pretty impressive feat. Like, you know, he like he he he, he, he kind of tells kind of tidily the whole story. Um, And uh, I'm trying to think of also. Um, what are some of the other fun ones? Um, I mean, Did as far mention, as was I read about McDermott? Uh, I don't remember. Brandon may have read him. I didn't have okay, him on okay. it, but I do. I do. Um, I also really think that the oh, Anand Gopal's book, No Good Men Among the Living, which won, I believe it won a National Book Award, um, is a really impressive, is a really, you know, if you want to just like read one book about the American occupation in the 2000s, that's what you should read. Um, and then uh, I would also suggest that the... Um, you know, Cy Hirsch's uh, killing of Osama bin Laden story is 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 a really like so the journalist Carlotta Gall at The New York Times has written a lot of reporting that basically like kind of corroborates a lot of what Hirsch has reported. And I stand I think Cy's reporting like is is nobody has been able to knock down any part of it to me yet. Um, and so I would also urge people to reread that story because like. It really does. It is the kind of story that, it, you know, it provides his story was the ISI. Yes, that the ISI was holding bin Laden and that like the killing was basically a, you know, it was a theatrical production. It was a PR sculpted like military operation that was basically an assassination mission. And everything that they said about it, you know, really wasn't true. Uh, not everything. I mean, just 99 percent of it. And um I think that it's a real, you know, it's it's just like, you know, especially with Ukraine stuff uh, these days and where I, where I really do feel that, like, you know, Americans are just not getting the full picture about what's going on, uh, you know, in our in our sort of like grand new wars against Russia and China. Um, you know, it's it's like the size story is just a great look at how the government can manufacture a lie. And sometimes it's not even that good of a lie. It's just not good. It's not a good lie. 
like you know like what like Nord Stream 2 for example like nobody's really been able to sort of explain what happened there yet uh there's been a lot of really searching boring attempts in the media aside from the one we all know about size yeah, there's going to be some great books that come out when the UF has its like Winter Palace moment and all the records <laughs> yeah. get released. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, in like 300 years or yeah. less, inshallah. Give me six weeks. Yeah. yeah. The last two things I wanted to ask about is first, I, I know we talked about, you know, oh, the conspiracy heads earlier and, you know, yeah, yeah. Oh, fringe conspiracy people. But, you know, it's interesting. I will get in trouble for saying this. But I actually think sometimes we should probably pay more attention to voices like, for instance, someone you reference on the show and who's a personal hero of mine, Peter Dale Scott. I know people, I mean, Peter is very much associated with, I guess, parapolitics or conspiracy, right? Talks about JFK a lot. Uh, yeah, but I, I want to, you know, I, I want to be clear, like, I have nothing against like parapolitical researchers or conspiracy politics or self-identified conspiracy politics or like it, that is, I'm, I'm obviously making more fun of like a Twitter archetype or, you know, stereotype than an actual perspective. And I agree. Peter Dale Scott is for us. I mean, you know, Road to 9-11 is, is actually, I forgot to plug that one a bit ago, but that's another book that we relied on very heavily. And a lot of what, you know, is important about like the conspiracy, uh, you know, because again, like a huge part about blowback. Well, I, what I was going to say is oh, sometimes yeah, please, they wait, have sorry. a point, you know? Yeah, I agree. No, that's, I agree. That's what I mean. I saw, sorry, I saw where you were going and I just wanted to pick it up and run with it too, because I agree completely. Like, you know, like a huge point of blowback in this season has been about develop is about developing continuities and developing a, uh, you know, showing people why policy in the 1980s, you know, leads as part of the same, you know, sweep that delivers us to the present and delivered us to the, you know, the, the botched withdrawal for, uh, from Afghanistan in 2021. And I think that that really does make most sense when you view things as having a measure of like, you know, like, yeah, there are guys in rooms beyond guys in rooms. There are generations of guys in rooms and submerged associations and networks that are interested in influencing events to their benefit. And in the case of Afghanistan, you know, that may mean that, like, you know, for example, you know, uh, and you can listen to people, listeners can check out the show uh, to get more of this. But, you know, it may have involved like, you know, the CIA developing as an asset, uh, one of the first Afghan communist presidents, um, you know, at the same time, the CIA, by the way, was running Mexico's president as an asset. Um, you know, this is I mean, like there's, you know, like, uh, you know, I I, I do like th there's that Gary Webb quote that everyone knows, but it's a real one. And it fucking, you know, people should take it seriously. I don't believe in conspiracy theories, man. I believe in fucking conspiracies. Right. Uh, that was a great drop name drop there. I, I love me some Gary Webb Dark Alliance. Oh, um, he's the man. <laughs> Rest in peace. Bless his soul. And by the way, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that uh, Peter was an influence on this season because like i said if people haven't read peter Dill scott i think he gets on to a lot of things even if you don't agree with every conclusion he and, draws you know we've everything. interviewed we last season for the korean war season we interviewed um bruce cummings who's like you know probably the preeminent historian of all things korea uh that america's got you had jeffrey k on too right? yeah love jeff k so another great guy and on, uh germ warfare yeah yeah yes and bruce you know basically told us that like everything peter dale scott had said about like the origins of the korean war and the china lobby influence you know like it was more or less true um, which is, you know, pretty important because I think a lot of the narrative about the Korean War, uh, for example, starting as an act of just like purely northern aggression, like, you know, the actual like, you know, 
who started what on that day is like, you know, it's it just may not be able to be resolved until we get like, you know, signals intelligence archives uh, like or signals intelligence uh, from that period released. However, um, there are, you know, like there were patterns of speculation on soybeans and other uh, interests from, you know, like like primarily out of uh, then Formosa, but Taiwan. Uh, you know, the so-called China lobby and American right wingers who were agitating for a confrontation to start on that day, perhaps. And, you know, it's it's you know, that stuff isn't just like, oh, that's just like babble or, you know, like, you know, it's it's yeah, those are events we're taking seriously. Um, I will say, you know, we I don't think we had time, for example, to get into like airline stock trading on 9-11 or around 9-11. Oh, you mean uh, the insider the trading claims? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I, I, I know about. Like I've seen. I, I know. Like it's. I will confess that that's more of like a meme to me than something I've like looked into. Um, but you know, what's stopping me? Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I. But by the way, uh, I was just going to say about Peter's work. I think what's important in his work is just the way that he's able to look at different interest groups, whether it's the China lobby or Wall Street or the CIA. Like there are these sort of competing factions within the political sphere. And there's a lot of, I guess, uh, subterranean subterfuge is what I like to call it going on behind the scenes, especially in DC. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, um, Noah, there's a shit ton of Metal Gear Solid references yes. in this season. And, you know, I think Hideo Kojima is probably one of the few video game creators that I would call like an artist in his own right. And he's very cinematic so much so that people basically treat him as like a, a director instead of like just a, a creator of video games. It's almost like a cinematic in his style of making video games. Uh, could you talk about uh, Metal Gear Solid and, and uh, maybe its influence on this season? Yeah. So Brendan got really into the games. Like I last year, like I've sunk I think I sank like over a hundred hours, well over a hundred hours into uh Phantom Pain on PC sometime last year. Uh, and then Brennan got really into them this year. And we titled a bunch of the episodes after uh Metal Gear Games because we realized just how like like a lot of the subject it just it, it aligned really well. Um, we felt. But Phantom Pain, the most recent game, um is just this marvelous like you know it's half set in afghanistan and um you know it's the the themes of the show private mercenaries uh you know world globalization uh you know it's it's it's, to me to brendan he sort of was the one who suggested like like i'm I'm gonna uh, he said like i'm gonna be putting a lot of i'm gonna be sprinkling a lot of metal gear in and i told him like run with it dude um so yeah, we're we're both big fans. And look, you know, it also like helped that like and like the Ouroboros thing, Snake Eater. I mean, like I you know, it's just, you know, like synergy upon synergy. You gotta get Kojima it's on. also apropos because you know, <laughs> I think Kojima in some ways is a fellow traveler to people on the left. I mean, he seems like he's very anti-war and whatnot. So I believe he is, and I think that in general, like he is not showing like his characters are really not good guys ever. Uh, especially like in the case of the Metal Gear games, like it's, you know, they're just animated by their passions very strongly and often in relatable ways. But like, especially in Phantom Pain, it does feel like there is just like a, you know, a quality of, of um, yeah, there's like a, like a frankness about the grimness of what you're doing uh, in the context of, you know, like killing all these guys, uh, you know, like, you know, like Soviet grunts more or less. 
um, in Afghanistan and then in Africa, like, you know, like indigenous soldiers. Uh, but it, it's, he, I mean, he, the, the man, and he, you know, he like weaves in some like weird, you know, he always got, he always got some like weird sci-fi shit up his sleeve too. So it's not never just like some like straight thing. Um, I loved, I, you know, like I, at first I hated the skulls and then I love the skulls. I'll say that. I just love the fact that I, I will always love the fact that he named the main character in Metal Gear Solid after Kurt Russell's character in Escape from New York. Absolutely. <laughs> 100%. And we, and, 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 and I, it's, it's to me, one of the other things that I, one of the other things that's very nice about him. And then I got to run is, um, I also think he's got like a really beautiful and like rich uh he's got a really beautiful and rich idea of how the world can be and not just the pain of how it is. Well, Noah, uh, I know we have to let you get going uh real quick. How can my listeners uh keep up with your work and Brendan's work and how can they listen to Blowback? They can listen to Blowback by going to www.blowback.show. And if you pay $25, you get all 10 episodes right now. But if you don't want to pay just yet or you want to try it out. Just go to wherever you get your podcasts and look up Blowback and you'll get instructions again on, on how you can download it there. And then, you know, eventually, if you want to wait, whatever, fine, you can wait a little bit and then the episodes will come out from behind the paywall eventually. But uh, go subscribe now at Blowback.show. Highly so recommend good. it listening. Thanks again. And thank you, Basson, for coming on Blowback. the show and co-hosting. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Noah Colwyn and that you'll check out the Blowback Podcast. Season 4 is a real barn burner and you do not want to miss it. Additionally, I hope you'll check out Bassam's podcast, West Bank Robbery. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.